One of the most common things in Christians' hearts that I've heard over time is, I want community. I need community. Where's the community? Where's the right small group? Where's the right church? And I think people are moving around so much because they're, they're truly searching and they want, I think we were made to be in relationship, right? And so you feel that and, and, and you want the right relationship, but because you've never really experienced the type of relationship perhaps that you see in the scriptures or you think could be possible, um, you start acting maybe like an orphan. You know, you've been hurt, you've mm -hmm. maybe been abused, mistreated, misled. Um, and so you don't really trust anybody. And so when you go and you hear about a place that is actually taking this so seriously and taking repentance and covenant so seriously, I look at that and I say, thank you, God, because you, you, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know, so you know now as you're going through the process of baptism and uh, being discipled and, and coming to repentance and uh, learning about what it means to be in covenant, as you go through this process, you, you've got to tell yourself, well, all these other brothers and sisters that are a part of this church and have been have gone through this process, you know, of getting us to a place where we are trustworthy because we're all going to the same place. We, we all are in agreement on the same things. And, and so... You know, even when I would try to explain what we've found in this place to others, it's hard to comprehend, you know? So, so no, we're a body here. I mean, there's love. And it's like, no, 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 we're a body too. And there's love here too. And uh, yeah, I mean, what are you saying? No, 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 you don't understand, you know? And so you're trying to explain the difference and it's, it's really difficult, but I think that it can feel a lot of times like an indictment on, mm -hmm. well, are, are you saying that we haven't been doing it right? I haven't been doing it right. Are you saying I'm not a Christian? Or what are you saying here? Because apparently you're doing something I'm not doing. You found something I haven't found. And it feels a lot to me like the way that you're explaining this is that's good and right. It's the only church or the only way. Um, and I, I'm just not, I'm, I'm just not getting something here or whatever the case. And it feels kind of like you're, you're sort of maybe insulting their faith or their journey or their walk. But at the same time, all you're saying is like, you know, that thing you've been looking for, the thing that's been in your heart, the thing we've been talking about, I think I found it, you know, or the best version of it I've ever seen. So it's kind of, it's kind of ironic. It's, it's been difficult to be on the one side of it for so long, going on a journey, seeking out the church, trying to find God's people, coming to a place where you, where you find a people that are walking in repentance, that are serious about covenant, serious about discipleship, serious about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you know? Amen. And when you try to share it with other people because it's so different than what perhaps they've experienced, it's, it's hard to understand and it can almost feel like an indictment on them Amen. when that's not the point at all. Amen. All I've ever been trying to say is like, Hey guys, I, I think I think we're getting somewhere here. Amen. If that makes any sense, it I, does. I, and and I think I just would borrow from Brother Dan's repeated uh, reference to the marriage covenant. You know, my wife is not the only woman, but she's the only woman for me. And it's like when I have found the place where I belong, that's the only church for me. So they say you're acting like it's the only church. Well, it's the only one for me <laughs> because I found where I'm home. And when you found that, then stay there. When you can make your home in his word, that's where you're supposed to be. Amen. You know, James says that the body without the spirit is dead. <laughs> and, and so we can't be attached to a, a lifeless form that names the name of Christ and the name of the church just because it put that label on itself. We've got to be part of something where we feel home in the Lord. Mm. We feel home in his love. We feel home in his truth. 
we've made our home in his word. And when we feel that, that's the only place for us. Home is, is, is the only place for us. It's, 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 a, it's a plexus of relationships, not, not four walls of, of wood and, and uh, sheetrock. Amen. Amen. And going back even to the whole uh, orphan analogy, you know, I think it's in fairness, it's hard to come into a place where people are saying, no, we can be family here. Amen. So you can act like a brother, you can act like a son, you can, you can be uh, fully transparent, you can be fully known and fully loved. Mm. You know, well, is that even possible? And so you've got the orphan mentality of like, well, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to give myself over that way because I'm going to get hurt again. Yeah. You know, and I just say that We've got we've to trust, we've got to love, we've got to be vulnerable, we've got to give ourselves over or else we have no chance. Hello, thank you for taking my question. Can you elaborate on what the context of the area of 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 17 may indeed look like today and how that might be handled within the context of this body? May God continue to multiply and bless this ministry to the edifying of the saints. Thank you, brothers. So this is Paul's handling of marriage, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Do you have that already, Dan? Yes. Do you want to read it? 7, 10 through 17. 10 through 17 is a pretty good passage here. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So can I just pause you right there and say mm -hmm. what he's saying right here is that Paul is saying, I, not I but the Lord, makes this command. So he's quoting something that Jesus said while Jesus was on the earth. He's, he's giving a, a command, not I, this isn't coming from me, this is an instruction that Paul had access to from the Lord. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So here when he says I, not the Lord, I don't believe he's saying this is a good idea, but it isn't the Holy Spirit speaking. I believe he's saying, I am giving you instruction under the Holy Spirit, because uh, that's how he concludes. But the Lord, I'm not quoting something Jesus said while he was here. Paul would have had access to preachings of Jesus. He would have been a personal witness to teachings of the Lord. There may have even been documentation that Paul would have had access to that he occasionally quotes and that he occasionally refers to. Some of that we find in the Gospels. Others of it, it's alluded to in the Gospels, but it's not explicitly there. This is likely a direct quote and a very specific quote from Jesus in the first part. And then he goes on and he begins to give his own instruction, but he, he ends it by saying, I believe I also have the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're supposed to say, here's what I'm telling you. I don't think we interpret it as if Paul is saying, I want to say this under the anointing, and then I'm just going to give some good ideas in the holy inspired word of God that are, are just really just food for thought. And you can toss them out if you want. But I don't think that's how he's putting it. And I don't think the whole rubric of Scripture allows us to look at it that way. It's supposed to be God-breathed. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? 
But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So this is not a, a, a casual suggestion. And so I ordain in all the churches. Mm -hmm. yeah. The question seemed to be, how does this fit? How do we understand the context of it in the modern world? Yes, today and within the context of this body. Okay. I'm not sure that I see anything in this that tells me that it should be any different in the modern world than it was to who he's speaking to. <clears throat> in fact, the last sentence there seems to be pretty clear that this is not just addressing some topical thing that's going on in Corinth. So I ordain in all the churches. I'm not seeing anything in any of this language that says, um, you know, uh, this is just something we're going to do for now and see how it works. No. So I think the instruction he's given applies still. And may, I don't know if that's what the question is, is what does this mean? Um, what do we do? What how do you all think? Be, how would it be handled within the context of this body? So I think that the, our application of this would be how we would, some of our interpretation on this would be that, you know, if a, if a, if a wife becomes a believer and she has children and the husband is not a believer, uh, this has happened in our, in, in our case, both for husbands and wives respectively. Um, the husband, let's say in, our, in my scenario, is not a believer, but the wife has, they have children together. Paul says um, that they should not seek to separate if he or she will let the believing spouse uh, live as, as a Christian, or however he puts it there. It says if he is willing to live with her, but it, it, it seems to pretty clearly Presume. imply yes. that that means he's willing to live with her in the faith. Right. He, he's willing to accommodate and not interfere with her practice as a, a believer. It has to be if he is willing to live with her. Mm -hmm. So she's changed now, and he's going to question. He was clearly living with her prior, but it's a question of whether he's going to accommodate her new condition mm -hmm. as a Christian. And so what that entails is not that he would compromise her with her with his unbelief he would cause her to disobey the word of god or uh, or negate her convictions but he would instead accommodate her as a believing christian obeying the full ordinance of scripture and if if he's willing to to live with her under this new arrangement then several things are happening one she's able one of the indications of this peaceful coexistence is that she's able to consecrate the children and that literally is separate the children she's she's willing to set set apart the children so she's not going to be complicit in giving the children a lifestyle that she is not uh, that, that goes against her convictions mm -hmm. and we think that all of this is entailed in the idea that he is able to live with her he is willing to live with her assumed uh, as a Christian under her new status. And, and then that makes sense as to how she's sanctifying the home. The home is changing, the environment is changing, whether through his influence as a believer or her influence as a believer. And they're not, they're not, he's not basically saying, you can stay with me if you live as a sinner and keep your faith private, but instead he's willing to live with her in her obedience to God. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that you know, 
where the rubber often hits the road is where the wife feels this is a conviction for me. I can't, I can't renege on this. I, I can't disobey the word of God in this manner or that. And the husband says, well, if you can't do that, well, then you can't be my wife or whatever. He can't come. No, no person, whether a spouse or otherwise, can come between us and God. Just simply cannot. But as much as is possible, a husband or wife can coexist with a unbelieving spouse so long as they let so long as they tolerate their their Christian conviction and and uh, we've seen it work and we've seen it fail we've seen it work for a while and then fail and and uh, I think that it has to be somewhat interpreted case by case and ultimately it is the decision of that that wife or husband how they're going to handle this but the sanctification is not some magic that she's just kind of automatically bringing over the kids uh, as to eternally secure them or something. We believe children are secure by nature of their being ch them being children. So the sanctification has to refer to a real life change in their, in their upbringing. Uh, oh. So it's, it's complicated. Seems like his point is um, if there's peace and there's mutual respect and, and such, to, the believer is not to be the one to initiate a separation. No. He says if the unbelieving... Uh, husband or wife departs, let them depart. Right. You know that maybe they can't abide with it. But if they're if they're willing, if they're willing to be respectful, then don't just break off a marriage because, you know, I'm a believer, and so see you later. Right. Uh, you're you're supposed to bear with that as long as it's being respected. But yeah, there can be a lot of nuance. And he suggests that it's not going to be through argumentation that the unbelieving husband is going to be one. Yeah, Peter it, makes that pretty clear. Yeah. You do not know, oh wife, whether, you know, in this way or that way, she will be he will be one. Peter tells her that she can win him without a word. Yes. Indicating that there might be a temptation to employ a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Can you give any insight to the hornet in Exodus twenty three verse twenty eight, also mentioned in Joshua twenty four and twelve? In Deuteronomy seven twenty. This is the hornet driving out the the enemies, right? Uh, I, yes. think, I think that's what it is. But I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canite, and the Hittite from before you, etc. This is in the promise of the angel, who's going to go before you. Right. Beware of him. You know, obey his. See that you obey his voice. He will not forgive you. It's that whole uh, thing. Yeah. I mean, I've always understood that as the judgment of God. Yeah, not, not literal hornets. Well, perhaps. <laughs> Although I'm, I'm open to the possibility that he did use things exactly like that. Sure. You know, I think that in, in the sense of the the orders of creation that are set in motion, um, when we're, whenever we're talking about the Elohimic realm right. and the realm where the angels are functioning as created beings of God that there are even elements of nature that function within that. Right. When, when those youths are mocking Elijah right. and the bears show up, uh, you know, some kind of reaping and sowing is going on there yeah. through an agent that is not uh, uh, a sentient being. Uh, those bears may not really understand what's going on, but somehow there is a dynamic that is unfolding here where the creation itself is rejecting a certain kind of sin. So. Yeah. I'm not so sure that there couldn't have been a literal plague of hornets sure. that was involved in, in making the promised land less inhabitable. Yeah. 
I think generally it seems like an agent of expulsion, an agent of wrath, uh, of God's wrath. And I think that it, it's likely a figure of speech where we have idioms where we would use terms like that. Yeah. Uh, he's dogging my tail. Yeah. And, and we, we, would, we would incorporate an idiom like that, and we don't literally mean that yeah. he's a dog. The enemy's getting hammered. Or, or that I have a tail. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The enemy's getting hammered. And I think that it's likely some illusion to... You think about someone leaving, uh, running in front of a wasp or a hornet, and there's not a lot of dithering in the exit. It's it's pretty prompt. <laughs> and I think that's probably, I think it certainly can incorporate, like you're saying, I agree. But I think he's probably saying, you know, you're going to make a run and it's going to be, it's not, there's not going to be any uh, wishy-washy going on there. I don't, I, I, that's, that's Well, the, the sentence before would seem to s- support that. It says, I will send my fear before you. Yeah. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite. So yeah. whether it's figurative or literary, literal, uh, in one sense, may not matter. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's, it's an unclear Hebrew word, the hornet. The, the Septuagint translates it as a wasp, make it a singular thing. Um, it's not like many hornets, but it, it's it's just a little bit ambiguous, and I think that in all likelihood, it is a it's an idiom of wrathful expulsion, and I think that if if the Lord wanted us to know much more about it, He might have elaborated it in Scripture, but we don't really have that. Doesn't Isaiah use it as well? Um, it's here in Joshua too. It's it's in 12. Deuteronomy and Joshua also referring to the same thing though. So it could be it could be a physical hornet. Maybe there was just. A I hornet sent the there. hornet before you, which drove them out before you, and that's Joshua. Deuteronomy seven. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. Yeah, in Isaiah seven he says, "At that time the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria." <laughs> Here comes. <laughs> and all of them will come and make their home in the ravines between the cliffs and in the crevices of the cliff and all the thorn bushes and in all the watering holes. So, you know. <laughs> that again could be literal or figurative. The, the whistling the Assyri- part? <laughs> well, the whistling part, yes, but the, even the Assyrian yeah. part, you know. I mean, he's they're, they're pretty explicit about where hornets would be, and they would be in the crevices and by the watering holes. So maybe it's a... Maybe it's a play on on both natural and spiritual. A lot of times the Bible is is doing that, kind of a play of of terms. Is that the last question? That's all we've got. Okay. Okay. Well, God bless you, and and Lord willing, you'll see us next time, and maybe then the microphones will work. (laughs) Um, Over and out.